Ahoy, Matt here. Just before we start today's show, I know last episode I said the Grey Nurse Sharks would be our next episode. However, I've moved this episode forward, and it's all about going back in time with paleontologist Ben Francischelli to learn about megalodon sharks. This is because Ben and Museum Victoria are having a really cool fundraiser fossil charity night in Bayside on the night of the 17th of Feb. If you're interested, follow the links in the podcast notes or listen to the end of the show for a bit more information. Now, back to the podcast. G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interact with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to divers to underwater photographers, citizens, scientists, paleontologists, and people that have an intense passion for marine life. My name is Matt Testoni, and apart from the paleontologists, I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Ben Francischelli, and he's a vertebrate paleontologist. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm excited. So today we're going to be talking about the megalodon and megatoothed sharks. Tell us what a megalodon is or a megatoothed shark is. Kind of paint the picture if you have never watched a Discovery Channel uh, documentary. Oh, I hope no one would ever watch those documentaries (laughs) about the megalodon in the first place. They're horrible documentaries. If you ever see one that says that they're still alive, get out of it as soon as you can because the megalodon's dead. The good thing about the megalodon is that most people already know exactly what we're talking about. It is the biggest shark that has ever existed in the history of the world. So your great white shark will get to about six meters in length and about two metric tons. Whereas this shark, the megalodon, probably about 50 to 80 metric tons, 15 meters in length. So it was the size of a modern humpback whale. It had a mouth that was so large it could swallow me whole. And the incredible thing about it is that we have documented evidence of it eating baleen whales in the fossil record. So it was quite possibly part of the biggest predator-prey interaction of all time. That's the megalodon in a nutshell. Wow. Whale eater. I just picturing a shark that's big enough to just snack on whales is amazing. And so, yeah, their teeth are huge. They are just seriously terrifying. When you hold one in your hands and you just look at it and you go, whoa, that's nuts. You know? Well, they get up to like tw- almost 20 centimeters, don't they? Yeah, bigger than my head. So, the biggest one <laughs> uh, in the States measured just over 20 centimeters, over seven inches, it was. So, seriously big. And how many teeth would they have had? When you look at average sharks today, they've probably got anywhere between 200 and 300 teeth in their mouth at any given time. So, of course, they have the conveyor belts of teeth and they're constantly rotating and losing them, which is why they have so many teeth to begin with. Uh, But it's a fair estimate to to suggest that they probably have about 250 teeth in their jaw at any given time. 250 teeth the size of your head almost. That's, That's one humongously crazy and scary creature. What got you interested in them and how have you come to be so interested in kind of megatooth sharks and so on? Yeah, when I was a kid, I loved Jurassic Park more than anything in the world. I thought it was the greatest movie because you saw these animals as though they were animals as well. You saw Velociraptor, you saw Tyrannosaurus Rex, and when you heard it bellow, you know, you that this shudder went down your spine. It was a terrifying creature. It reminded you that they maybe fossils, but they were still alive at one point throughout our history. And then 
naturally, as a kid, I was just really interested about the world around us and just wanted to learn everything and anything and absorb anything of that kind of paleontological nature as well. Started to learn about whales, you know, and how we're in the time of the largest creatures that have ever existed with the blue whales today. That boggles my mind. The whales walked on lands. But then, of course, you had the megalodon and it's inescapable. Paleontology is kind of intertwined with the megalodon as well, because... It's such a fascinating creature in so many different regards. I mean, you just can't get away with it in popular culture. Jason Statham bursting in the Meg in 2018. And so it's everywhere. And so the more questions you start asking about it, the more difficult it becomes to answer about it. Asking the question, when did it die off and how did it die off is a really complicated one for paleontologists. Speaking of die off, I think it died off a couple of million years ago. And when did it come into being? Yeah, a really good question as well. So we know that the Megatooth lineage that gave way to the Megalodon had existed on the planet for anywhere between 50 and 60 million years. And then about three and a half to 3.6 million years ago, bang, they just disappeared off the face of the earth. And we don't really know why they did that at all. So it's one of the overarching questions that paleontologists have been trying to answer their best and we suspect that one of the reasons they disappeared in the first place has something to do with a myriad of different reasons. Of course, there's not just one, you know, it wasn't like a meteorite shuddering into Earth like it was with the dinosaurs, but rather a whole catastrophic chain of events that led to the demise of the megalodon. So, for example, their food, their prey, the dwarf baleen whales that they rely so heavily on, they started to go extinct because of climate change that happens throughout that period. So as soon as their prey started to go extinct... And then as soon as you brought in another variable, like other predators that may have also made the megalodon extinct, you start to see this chain effect of them disappearing off the face of the earth. You mentioned other predators that may have made them go extinct or outcompeted them. That kind of makes me interested. What, what was competing with a megalodon for food? It's so fascinating as well. And again, it's just baffled scientists for the longest time. We just don't know. But the hypotheses that are out there at the moment are really, really intriguing. One such hypothesis is that the first orcas came onto the planet at roughly the same time, but the fossil evidence doesn't back it up. Orchina citrionensis comes at about 3 million years ago, found in Japan, but they're a much smaller morphotype than the modern orca that you can find in killer whale. And so we don't suspect the killer whales at this stage because of what we can find in the fossil record are the reason why the megalodon disappeared. Because, of course, we know today that orcas are the ever-encompassing mega predators. They take down everything and anything, including great white sharks and blue whales and pods. But one very intriguing hypothesis that was formulated just last year concerns the great white shark and whether or not it killed off the megalodon. And I'm sure some of you listeners right now might be going, how does a shark that weighs two metric tons kill off something that weighs 50 metric tons? It, it doesn't make any sense. And the idea behind it is that more mature great white sharks actually knocked out a growth stage of the developing megalodon. So as the megalodon was growing and trying to get to the same size as, as a more mature great white in a much shorter amount of time, that more mature great white was just much better at adapting to eating its prey than what the juvenile was. And so if you've got two animals competing in the same ecological niche for the same resources, something's going to give. Yeah, that's such an interesting kind of story or hypothesis. Because I found, I found it amazing that great white sharks lived at the same time as megalodons. They, they first appeared globally at about 4 million years of age. And there are some incredible fossils from Peru, like mind-blowingly beautiful as well. There's an entire skull of one called Carcaridon herboli 
that's at about five to six to seven million years of age. And it shows the transitional form and the evolution of great whites. So we suspect that great whites actually evolved from broad-toothed mako sharks rather than from other lineages. Because we can see tiny little serrations developing on the teeth of this carcarodon hubuli that's roughly five to seven million years of age, we know that it probably was an ancestral form of mako than anything else. Uh, but shortly thereafter, they just conquered the entire world. And you can find uh, their fossils in almost any marine deposit from that point onward. Wow, they're kind of like the humans of their day. <laughs> yeah, they kind of are in a sense. They just went out of their way to eat anything and everything. Yeah, they were, they were super duper successful. And that's resonated in almost every single deposit that you can find whenever there's a marine fossil. And so with megalodons... Where did they kind of live and globally, but what kind of environments they live and what did they eat apart from whales or did they eat anything apart from whales? Yeah, you've got to assume that they're pretty opportunistic. So anything that they find or come across, they probably eat. They, we know that they ate seals. Uh, there's fossil seals with bite marks in the serrated edge of the tooth of the megalodon in the serrated bit of the gouge of the bone that they've actually let bedded in as they try to eat the animal itself. So we know that they were eating a whole bunch of different vertebrates. I'm sure bony fish were also on the menu for them. You know, tuna gets a massive sizes as well. But in terms of where they lived, they would have lived in temperate to warm waters, necessarily coastal, but probably that's where the breeding grounds were. And when we've reinterpreted a lot of the paleoecology of certain areas around the world, we find that the breeding areas tend to be off the coast of uh, very warm areas close to land as well. In, in Port Phillip Bay, for example, where we can find their fossils, we actually see that they're probably seasonal giants. We don't find any of the juvenile megalodon teeth uh, that we would suspect to find with other deposits worldwide. So we know that they're probably not breeding here in what was Port Phillip Bay five to six million years ago where we can find their teeth. Wow. So they're going in like kind of having nursery in warmer waters and then coming down to Port Phillip Bay to hunt which is yeah well yeah uh, these animals would have had a global distribution being as big as they are so they probably would have traveled across entire oceans in order to find their food most sharks these days are kind of like scavenger hunters i guess or they're opportunistic feeders but the megalodon size would have made it kind of the apex predator of its day wouldn't it yeah nothing would have rivaled the megalodon other than another megalodon there, there is one creature that could possibly take the title but more work needs to be done on it it was discovered in 2010, it was called Liviatan. It's a variety of killer sperm whale, very different from modern sperm whales today because they're mainly squid eaters. But this sperm whale had teeth not just on the lower jaw, but also on the upper jaw as well. A skull that was about three meters in length. And it's hypothesized that it may have also eaten baleen whales when it was alive. So it was also partaking in that predator-prey interaction, possibly the biggest one that has ever existed. Um, but we're not too sure because, of course, we weren't there many millions of years ago when they were living. So we're trying to reconstruct it as best we can as paleontologists, but we're running into a number of difficulties. So the Liviatan, this giant killer sperm whale, may have posed some kind of a risk to it, but we find that they probably lived side by side one another for many millions of years. So the first Liviatan skeleton is found was found in Peru, just a partial skull, uh, dating in sediments eight to nine million years of age. And then in Beaumaris, in Port Phillip Bay, that's where you find the youngest evidence of these killer sperm whales anywhere on the planet at between five and six million years. So we know that they coexisted with one another for at least that whole period of time. 
Okay, so they're unlikely to have caused the extinction of the megalodon. Yeah, it's really intriguing because a lot of people seem to, seem to think that, but they coexisted for a really long time. So there's no reason to think that Leviathan or any killer sperm whale actually killed off the megalodon. I guess I reckon people just like the idea of a huge whale and a huge shark having a huge fight <laughs> when they probably didn't fight each other at all. That's the, one of the first things that kids ask. They're like, who would win in a fight, a megalodon or a Leviathan? And I'm like, Leviathan every day of the week, mate. But, you know... <laughs> They also ask, Does, would a T-Rex or a Spinosaurus, like both of those animals are separated by 30 million years, you know, they, they would never afford each other. Uh, <laughs> it's funny that you say that because so many kids ask me that question all the time about who would win that. So it's very cute, but it's also like, <laughs> let's not focus on that kids. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, I guess at least the, the like, you know, giant whale and the giant shark lived at the same time and probably did come across each other. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that they probably saw each other. Whether or not they interacted with one another is another huge guess. We, we don't know. Yeah, and just need more to, fossils for that. <laughs> That's what we need. Yeah, just just to deviate real quick. I mean, the idea that a whale, as a predator like that, because currently all our whales we see them as friendly, and you know we want to go swim with them. And I don't really know apart from an orca, which they haven't really killed anyone in the wild. We don't see whales as dangerous, but these whales would have been dangerous, wouldn't they? Almost certainly. So we know that they probably had very large brains, you know, encapsulated in that skull of theirs. So they would have had an encephalization quotient that would have been relatively high. Difficult to tell how smart an extinct animal is, of course, and whether or not it displays the same level of intelligence as a modern day orca. But by looking at the, the morphotype and the ecotype and, you know, they, they would have lived in very similar roles in their environment. So it's fair to assume that these killer sperm whales were probably incredibly smart creatures as well. In order to be a top predator, you just need to be a smart creature. And we see that with sperm whales today. Sperm whales vocalize to one another in different dialects, you know. Modern sperm whales, we still don't know so much about them. We're still learning new things about their cultures all the time. So it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, these killer sperm whales would have been incredibly smart. Yeah, and I mean, all, all whales would have been, were, are amazing, especially like, I mean, at the moment I just read that humpback whales songs actually travel around the globe, kind of like a pop hit, which... It's wild, isn't it? I can't yeah. believe that. Unbelievable. Yeah. So back to the fossils. In Port Phillip Bay or any kind of fossil deposit, say you're swimming along and you find a fossil, or how does it go from finding a fossil, finding a tooth, to saying it's from a huge predator or, you know, guessing the size. Talk us through the paleontology of it. Part of my work involves the thrill of getting to find these fossils for the very first time in many millions and millions of years. And that's what I love about it because every single discovery that you make can rewrite the history books of an entire group of organisms that no one has ever seen before. So I remember back in 2018, the very first megalodon tooth I'd ever found uh, it was in a new site that we'd never we'd never been to before. We'd only heard whispers of it and members of the public had shown us material from it. And in November 2018, I decided to go down with a bunch of colleagues and continue to prospect the site and see if there was anything that actually yielded any. And we started at nine o'clock in the day and we we're having a bonanza day. We were just having the best time. We were finding sperm whale teeth and smaller shark teeth and bits of whale skull that were dating back roughly five million years of age. It was right at the end of the day. And I said to my colleagues, do you see the pinnacle at the far right over there? We're going to swim as far as we can over to that rock. 
And if we find something, it's great. And if we don't find anything at all, that's great too, because we've already had such a great day discovering a completely new site unknown to science. So we got into the water. It was clear in every single direction, like 10 meter clarity. It was beautiful, flat as a tack on the top. We swam all the way over to the pinnacle and we found absolutely nothing. And I was like, well, that sucks. That's, that's what happens sometimes. Sometimes you come up empty handed. So a lot of my friends and colleagues said, oh, I'm going to go out in the deeper water and continue looking. Um, and I said, I'm going to go in the shallower water and just see if anything pops up. And so I started walking at about a meter of water and uh, you know, it was up to my waist. And I remember there were these kids that were making sandcastles nearby, <laughs> which was just a weird thing to, just to remember. And I dunked my head onto the water and I can't remember what prompted me to do that. But underneath the sand itself, there was this weird horseshoe contortion of dense bones sticking out of it and I'd never seen anything like it before and I thought this is unique this is very odd so I went over to it held my breath dunked my head completely underneath the water got my gloved hands and wafted the water and the grit away from it and then there was this blue enamel shining back and the serrated edge just like a steak knife and I got my hands and I reached out to where it was in the sand itself and it was a tooth that filled up my entire hand so it was a megalodon. It was the very first one I'd ever found. It was really, really exciting. I was frothing at the mouth, you know, calling all my friends and colleagues to come over and say, you can't, you won't believe what I found. It was one of the biggest shark teeth that had ever been found in Australia. You know, it, it was really, truly gigantic. And so the next stage from there is cataloging as much of the information that we possibly can. So we can try to determine the age of this specimen. So luckily for us, there was a bit of sediment that was adhering to it. And because the entire geology of the area had been pretty rigorously mapped, we could actually see what kind of sediment it was and then say to ourselves, all right, so if this is the sediment that it is, and if this is the mineral that's in that sediment, it probably uh, relays back to this part of the cliff, which is roughly however much old. So we were able to determine the, the rough age of between five and six million years because of the sediment that was adhered to it. We then got a GPS that we put into a massive graph as well. Other data points like who found it, such as myself, um, the time it was found, whether it was loose, whether or not it was in situ, which means that it was in the rock itself. They're really important things that we want to note with it. So one of the worst things that I've seen in the collections of Museums of Victoria, unfortunately, is that there'll be some amazing looking fossils that will be quite scientifically important, but there's no data to tell us where they came from whatsoever. So one of the very first things I'll do whenever I find any fossil is I'll try and write down everything I possibly can so that we don't lose that information for the future as well. Because I, I see things from like the 1930s, jaws of killer sperm whales, etc., that were collected, and there's just no information that's adhered to them whatsoever. And so we lose what they are, where they're from. We can't determine anything from them whatsoever. We can't determine the age of these fossils without knowing exactly where it is that they've come from. So there's a lot that goes in behind the scenes. When you find a fossil, that's great. That's really exciting. It's really thrilling. But then the data collection goes immediately into overdrive. And you've just got to input all those values and ensure that you have all the correct information that's associated with the fossils. And that doesn't even bring us up to the conservation side of things as well, because a lot of people think that when you find a fossil for the first time, a fossil was hard, it's not gonna break down. But quite often these fossils, as soon as they're exposed to the elements, 
crumble into a million pieces. So you've got to make sure that you use the right types of glue to ensure that these fossils don't break down. And then you've also got to ask yourself the question once you start to get it back into the lab, how do we ensure that this fossil will look exactly the same in 100 years for researchers when they look at it as it does right now? And that's a really complicated question to ask, a really awesome question to ask, uh, but equally as hard to answer. So they're the questions that run through my mind and they're the, the, the kind of things that I go through in the back of my head whenever we find fossils. Yeah, and I, I guess especially marine fossils that are in the water can even be destroyed even easier. Yeah, so a lot of the specimens can be quite porous as well. And we find that the salt retention and the salt builds up and expands in the fossils. And sometimes they create these kind of beautiful calcite kind of structures inside the fossils itself. And in some occasions, it doesn't happen often, they can actually explode the fossil from the inside out with the salt content. Uh, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't happen often, but it's something that you have to neutralize as soon as you possibly can. So that's an added thing you need to also consider, you know, whether or not you neutralize said fossil in the water, in fresh running water for X amount of time. Wow. You just never think that, you know, you pick something off the beach and you've got to quickly run it back to the lab and do all this prep and record all this data in it. It sounds quite hectic and exciting, actually. It is so exciting. I love it more than anything in the world. It is just... I'm lost for words right now. It, the, the other consideration you also need to think of is what kind of creatures are living on top of it as well. Quite often there are barnacles that are adhering to the surface and bryozoans and will they damage or destroy any of the pres you know, preserved fossil structure that's already there? How would you dislodge them in a way that would try to preserve the animal that's also there? And sometimes you do end up killing them because that's the only way to get them off and that's it. Bryozoans, for example, they're dime a dozen. They're everywhere. Like every single rock is covered in bryozoans, you know? These are all crazy things that you've got to think about that I was thrust into with my, you know, my role. Every single dive is yielding something of immense scientific importance down at Beaumaris in Port Phillip Bay. And we're only just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg for it as well. It's only because of the uh, citizen science that has happened throughout the last two to three years that we started to make these incredible discoveries of these unique extinct animals that we never thought we'd ever find. Yeah. Just back to the, like the megalodon tooth, you don't have to discover a whole jaw or a whole, the bones of the, of the animal, do you? Just one bone or one tooth can be enough to let you identify what it is. Yeah. So when it comes to the megalodon, there's no skeleton that's ever been found of a complete megalodon before. So and this is where the issue is with its size. A lot of people can say, well, how big is the megalodon? We really don't know the answer to that. So the conservative estimate at the moment is that it's 15 metres in length, but other scientists have said it's 22 metres in length. Others have said it's the size of a blue whale, you know? And so they keep on showing us, you know, these fancy new techniques to try and guesstimate size just from tooth shape alone. But there's no way that we'll ever be able to find out. The only way we'd ever be able to find out the true size of the megalodon is if we found a skeleton and we're finding material that's articulated from very large sharks in Bayside, in Beaumaris, that is starting to give us more of a hint to the size of this creature, which is super duper exciting. You just don't find it anywhere else on the planet. Preservation like that, especially cartilage, which makes up the vast majority of the skeleton of, of a shark, does not preserve very well in the fossil record whatsoever. So to know that we're finding articulated remains, particularly of the vertebral column of very large sharks in Bayside throughout the last year alone, well, what else are we gonna find? You know, When is that skull of a megalodon gonna appear? It's entirely possible it might. 
I just have the best image of you swimming along and, you know, kind of doing that little underwater dust and you just, you know, dust off the, the skull of a <laughs> megalodon just, just down in Port Phillip Bay, which it's amazing that there is such important history and important paleontology to be discovered right in Beau Morris and Port Phillip Bay. I mean, I would have never thought it was such an important fossil site. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, when we think of heritage, we think of uh, the heritage of, of the first peoples that came here. We think of the heritage of the Europeans, people that came here as well. No one really ever really considers the paleontological history of Melbourne itself. And it is so rich. There is so much still to discover at this site. And I think that's what's so exciting about it. We have other paleontological sites throughout the country as well, but where they go and they go on these digs, we know exactly what they're going to find. You know, they're going to find big giant marsupials and that's cool, but we already know that they're going to find those marsupials. They're just going to find more of them. That's it. The awesome thing about Bayside is that when you go in there, you'll find a completely new group of animals that you didn't know existed before or the very first record of that animal for all of Australia. You can't, you can't get any better than that. You know, being on the cusp <laughs> of discovery, pioneering work that no one has ever done before, being the first person in millions of years to get to see these fossils. It's super exciting. Yeah. And so if anyone lives near a fossil dig site or lives near Beau Morris or around Port Phillip Bay, how can they look for fossils or what should they do and how can they get involved in such a cool discovery? So the most important thing is making sure that they have the knowledge behind it as well. So if you were to go into Google right now and type in PDF Morris fossils, it'll take you to a PDF that was released by Museums Victoria that will give you an overview of the fossil sites itself. When I go out and I lead expeditions out there and I'm with a team of people, the first thing that's on my mind above all else is occupational health and safety and making sure that every single person that is with me is safe. That is the overarching thing that I have to consider. Sometimes I'll go out in the fields with all my colleagues and my friends as well, and I won't even do the fossil hunting at all. I'll just be looking at each of the people that are in the water, making sure that they're doing the right thing. You know, if you want to go down and look for fossils, that's perfectly fine. I think that's exactly how I got started. You know, I was just really interested on a whim and just wanted to go down and see what the site looked like. And then I was hook, line and sinker. It couldn't get me away from the place. The other really important thing to acknowledge is that the fossils naturally erode out of the underlying sediment. So you don't need to bring any tools with you or anything like that. It is one of the very few sites in the entire world where you don't need to dig to find these fossils at all. It's completely different from all the other dig sites I've ever conducted throughout all of Victoria. So when you go down to the site, be aware there is a cliff there. People have died at the hands of that cliff before. You have to be as careful as possible. Bring a friend. Remember OH&S safety. Think about what you're actually looking for in the end. If you think you're going to find a megalodon tooth, they're very, very rare. There's only like 25 that have been found in the last 100 years in Morris. So you're probably not going to be that 26th person, but there are plenty of things still to find. Educate yourself. All the material is out there that you need to try and identify these structures. And if you do find something that's of scientific interest, that's loose in the sands, what we'd like for you to do is to pick it up take a picture of it and send it to us so we can identify it. And if it is of scientific interest, we'd ask that you donate it to Museums Victoria. Yeah. And where should they send it if they find something cool? Are there any tips for taking the photo and what kind of, is it Museum Victoria or anything else? 
Yes, thank you for bringing that up. There are definitely tips that you can have there because having a scale bar, or even if you just put it in your hands so we can get an idea of the size and the heft of the actual specimen that you're talking about is very useful for us. If you go onto the uh, website uh, of Museums Victoria, you should be able to just go to an area where you can actually send in your discovery or even if you don't think it, it might just be a fossil, they'll be able to tell you if it's a rock or if it is a fossil. Even the social media sites will be able to direct you in the right way. Wow, that's so awesome. Well, on that note, I encourage everyone to get into a bit of paleontology, but thank you very much for being on the show. And if anyone wants to see any of your cool science communication stuff or anything else about fossils, where should they go and what should they do? If you're interested in everything that you've heard here today and you want to know more about it, uh, you can follow me on either Facebook or Instagram. It's called a fool's experiment, a underscore fool's underscore experiment on Instagram. If you type in a fool's experiment into YouTube, you can see all my funny little videos that I've been doing in isolation as well. Boy, has that been fun here at the fourth stage of hell where time is completely irrelevant, of course. <laughs> Yes, I've grown out my beard. You can see it with each successive video as well. The beard gets thicker and thicker. And then, you know, there's one where the beard is completely gone. There's a stupid mustache for another one because what do we have to do with time is irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's always a pleasure to talk about the extinct water rivers. If you've liked this episode of the podcast and you want to hear a bit more about Bayside Fossil, Museum Victoria are giving a tour on the 17th of Feb 2021 in Beaumont. You can find the event by visiting Eventbrite and looking for Expedition Bayside, a lost world of Bayside fundraiser for Museum Victoria. This event will help fund further research and further fossil discoveries in these amazing sites. And as Ben mentioned, maybe even a few new species never before known to science and paleontology. So if you can, check it out. And I might see you there, because I'll be there for sure. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by myself, Matt Testoni. You can see more of my photography on Instagram, Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography, and my webpage, emptyunderwatermedia.com. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and visit our Patreon account, patreon.com slash Podcast. Production assistance by Georgia McGraw and music by Dan Musil, and he's fantastically awesome, amazing flight guitar. Tune in next time to hear all about the Grainer Shark, which is meant to be on today's episode, but was moved because of the amazing event before mentioned. And that's going to be with underwater photographer Karen Green. This has been the Sea Creatures Podcast. Over and out.